Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hey O'Toole, it's so good to be doing a podcast with you today. And before, but I just have to tell you before we get to uh, the two things we're going to do: occupy the Norwegian uh, series, TV series, and uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, the movie. I just have you heard the news about James Bond? No. Okay, I was going to call and tell you privately because I didn't want you to overreact or to, <laughs> you know, start crying in the middle of our podcast or something. But so they made an announcement. The fans and you know the London bookmakers, everybody's having you know they're trying to guess what who the new Bond's going to be. And um, I know that you know you were one for um, for um, Idris. What's well, his name? Idris Elba or Alex from McLeod's Daughters. Yeah, and then Tom Hiddleston, P- Hiddleston people are talking about, Tom Hardy, or even Gillian Anderson. Here's what Mendes is saying, okay? They're saying, you know what? The decision is totally up to the producer, Barbara Broccoli, um, who inherited the power to pick the na- next James Bond from her father, the original franchise producer, Albert Broccoli. And Barbara is not going to play favorites. And here's the thing. This is what Mendes is saying. This is a quote. It's not a democracy. It's not the X factor. It's not the EU referendum. It's not a public vote. Barbara chooses who's going to be the next Bond. End of story. And I can guarantee whatever happens with it, it will not be what you expect. That's what she's been brilliant at, and that's how it will survive. And basically what they're saying is that we should just trust her because she's not going to pick somebody that everybody wants. She's just not going to do it. So I wanted to let you know that so you can stop talking about who you think should be the next Bond. And I don't know, do you need to take to your bed or should we continue with the podcast? <laughs> no, I'm thinking it's not a democracy. It's not an EU vote. That might be a great segue into talking about Occupied. Well, it could be a great segue into talking about Occupied, but I have one other thing to talk about too. <laughs> and did you, um, did, you re- did you happen to read the book, I'm Not a um, Serial Killer? I did not read that. Was that someone's memoir? Uh, it was, <laughs> no, but you know, I, what I've realized in reading the book is we all are totally obsessed with serial killers. We just don't know it. And that, for example, there are three traits that they have growing up. One is they're obsessed with fire. One is they like to kill live things. You know, I mean, there's just things that you just never knew. But anyway, it's a really well, interesting book. Remember, we discussed that in our podcast about making a murderer, where that was one of those pieces of evidence that he killed the cat. Remember, he threw exactly. it over an open flame? Yes. And can I say that, you know, probably it's partially about my obsession with um, Silence of the Lambs, which, you know, you haven't even had the courtesy to watch yet. But I was um, going to say, maybe I'm a little less obsessed with the serial okay, killers. Exactly. Okay, but they're coming. It's coming to the movies on August twenty sixth. I'm not a serial killer by Billy O'Brien, and um, I can't wait to see it. But now the book, by the way, was by John Cleaver. So um, I just want to put that out there. So if you haven't read the book, you have two weeks, you know, to read the book before the movie comes out because you got to read the book before the movie. I think it's one of those books. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. Good. We're going to make a recording. <laughs> It was wonderful, Bunny. Want to try another take? Well, I don't see why. That seemed perfect to me. We're going to start with Florence Foster Jenkins, which is based on the true story of this woman in the 40s who um, didn't have a good singing voice but believed that she did. And, you know, somehow I think she's my soul sister. 
You know, even now when there's someone, I think I can sing and no one else does. But so I have great empathy for her. But what did you well, think? You go first. What did see, you think? See, Hollister, that's where you and I differ because I was excused from my mandatory fifth grade glee club. So I know I can't sing and everyone else knows it too. So Well, by the way, I, you know, I was actually the song leader at my sorority at the University of Nebraska. But they asked me really? to just mouth the words. And I thought, so I was, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I was totally insulted and said, why would I do that? And they that said, because it sounds better. Funny. And I, I just was shocked, truly shocked. You were so, the original lip syncer. I, well, no, I was the second because Florence Foster Jenkins thought she could sing too. Hollister, one of the funniest things watching this movie is knowing that Meryl Streep really can sing. I mean, she took lessons from the same instructor as Beverly Sills. Okay. Um, I think Meryl was born to do camp. This was a great role for her. Well, it's funny. She talked about it in an interview, and one of the things she said is, it was really hard because she had to learn some of the most difficult arias ever, and she had to learn them first Mm -hmm. correctly. And then she had to... um, ruin them when she when she was filming and in a funny way right well she had to well I think just ruining them alone was difficult enough but she also then said that he shot it live and like Mamma Mia they did pre-record so but in this particular movie he told her just do it live so she was actually on set with no pre-recording of the of the voice so uh, so it was a really, really hard thing to do no question about it did you think she was good in the role I thought she was great in the role hmm you know, I thought the real star, though, was Hugh Grant. I just, I think he held it all together with amazing glue. And that face, that face, that face, that Hugh Grant face that can put can make you feel empathy or humor or a little bit of manipulation. I mean, don't you, I just think he's amazing on the screen. And this role was really made for him. I think Madame Florence might need more lessons. Please. My wife is ill. Singing is her dream, and I'm going to give it to her. We have to help her, because without loyalty, there's nothing. The casting was great. If it hadn't been Hugh Grant, I would have loved to have seen Stanley Tucci in this movie. I enjoyed them so much together in Julie and Julia. Um, Meryl said something... And also, Stanley Tucci and her... Not only in Julia and Julia, what else? Devil Devil Wears Wears Prada. Prada. Yeah, which I think, by the way, they were really good in together also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Meryl gave a great interview, and I'm just going to play a little clip of it here, about... Florence Foster Jenkins' relationship to her husband. And I thought it was a, such a great way to sum it up where she said love is a supporting delusion. The way love is an illusion itself, the way love is, is a, a supporting delusion in a way, to, to allow people to believe they are as their best, at their best. Yes, yes. That makes That's what sense. we hope we do. for our partner, and is that they are that. as... Yeah, At their best, yeah. we, we see the other parts, but we choose not to. Huh. Well, in, interestingly enough, in the movie, um, they sort of intimate that they were married, but the truth was they never got married. Right. And, Her first divorce yeah, never went through. Yeah. I know, and why? I don't know why they had to change that in the film. I'm not sure what, what, what was accomplished by taking away the truth. But it was true to the fact that they had this very modern relationship. The story, you know, is about this woman who basically buys uh, Carnegie Hall and... At the age of 76. <sighs> I know, because she wanted to sing in it. And, you know, can I just say, we Americans, we love people who can't do things well. <laughs> you know, 
Well, we do. I mean, you know, the Eddie the Eagle. Remember when the entire country got behind Eddie the Eagle at the at the um, Olympics a couple of Olympics ago? You know, when I first saw the trailer for Florence Foster Jenkins, I tweeted, "This is Eddie the Eagle as a musical." There's I know something very yeah. watchable yeah. about watching someone follow their dream when they just own it, especially and when give they it their really own. following their dream when they can you know, when they're actually good at something, it's never as appealing as following your dream when you're really not good at something. And I think I, 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 I sent our, our people a, a clip of her actually singing. And the truth is, I listened to her singing. And because I have perfect pitch, <laughs> I was able to discern that Meryl Streep made her sound like, a, you know, a, a nightingale. I mean, she was so much worse than Meryl Streep saying. I mean, have you did you have you heard any of the audios? I have. There's actually a documentary you can watch on YouTube. We'll put a link up on our site. Okay. It came out in 2008 called Florence Foster Jenkins, A World of Her Own. Friends said she tottered onto the stage and wondered if she'd ever make it. But she gripped the side of the grand piano and then pulled herself up and sang. mention in the Merrill version of the story at the end, the real recording to this day remains the most requested recording from the Carnegie Hall archives. Well, not only that, I mean, here's this woman who everybody knew couldn't sing, but she became beloved on the radio, certainly by the armed forces. I lost my left leg at Guadalcanal, but that day has got me happy to be alive. The lady is in lesson in courage and we love her. You know, the night before, guess who played the night before she did? Um, Cole Porter? No, Frank Sinatra. Oh. And she sold more tickets than he did. Isn't that amazing? I heard the demand was so big when she performed at Carnegie Hall. They had to turn away over 2,000 people from the door. Well, because people loved I'm telling you, we Americans love people who can't do something. We do. We love it. Well, I, I think it's the triumph of ambition over ability. I think we love to see people just go for it. That's a really nicely way to say it. But do you remember that clip that used to, uh, it's one of the sports stations used to play it over and over again, the agony of defeat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that clip. Yeah, and like yeah. it was the person who crashed in, you know, did a ski jump and crashed into something. I mean, it was just one mistake after another in terms of, of sports. And it was one, I think it was one of the most favorite clips ever shown on sports, in sports. And, you know, we just love somebody who can't do something but tries anyway. And but, I like that. I feel like that about us. But you know what? Us, you know? I think we really have to give it up to the real Florence Foster Jenkins. She really had a lot of musical ability and started out as a pianist and performed at the White House for the president, Rutherford B. Hayes. But then after marrying, running away with the first husband, getting syphilis from him, and then having an arm injury, she had to give up playing the piano. And they think the syphilis is what um, contributed to her probably partial say, did deafness. Did have anything to do with it? I, I, you know, huh, well, okay. partial deafness. Um, and in the movie, they touch on that. I mean, look at the two cures of the time. They were giving her arsenic and mercury. I mean, that can't help anyone's vocal cords. Yeah, no, no, not good at all. Not good at all. Now, Streep, I look, I think she was great in certain sections and then in other sections, like when she was singing and stuff, she reminded me a little bit of a girl playing dress up. You know, she just sort of overdid it, you know, sort of, you know how when a little girl puts on dresses and 
walks with great grandeur across the room or whatever. I, I felt like in those poignant moments when she was showing her vulnerability, she was street great. You know, I mean, there's nothing hashtag street great. There's no way around that she has that moment. But when she was sort of standing up there and getting ready to perform, now maybe I just felt like it looked like Meryl was playing dress up. I just didn't, well, I didn't think she nailed that part. I think that was true to the character of Florence Foster Jenkins. Maybe, I mean, but if I this just, someone's who really performed in her own tableau, wearing feathers and wings and sequins, she loved that aspect of it. But, but all I saw was Meryl playing dress up. You know, I didn't see... I didn't see that which she was trying to portray. It's interesting. This is definitely a much campier take on the story of Florence Foster Jenkins, so I thought it was true to that tone. Interestingly, there is a French movie that came out just around the same time called Marguerite. They set it in Paris, but it's also based on Florence Foster Jenkins. Hmm. And the actress who starred in that role won the César. So I haven't seen it yet, but I think that's a much more dramatic take. So you might prefer that version of it. Yeah, well, we do love a train wreck, you know, our country. I mean, we definitely do. Now, also, the the the, um, the director Stephen Frears, who directed yes. it. I never, I haven't seen High Fidelity, The Queen, and of course, one of my favorites. But you really disliked Philomena. I thought, I mean, to to go from Philomena to this, I think, is quite a quantum leap, and good for him for trying. I thought he did a great job. He's done so many different movies. One of his early ones was My Beautiful Laundrette which really put Daniel Day-Lewis on the map. That was also yeah. very different. The Grifters, very, very different. Yeah, I mean, he certainly has a, an eclectic uh, resume. There's no question about it. And Nicholas Martin, who wrote it, but I, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything he's written, but I thought he, he wrote this with what I thought was the perfect combination of charm, sympathy, wit, and intelligence. I, he I did just, a great job. He's written oh a lot for British television. And oh, he yeah. eventually just gave up on screenwriting. He was tired of the rejection. And when they read his script, they optioned it immediately. When I was watching, I thought, you know, this would make a great play. It seems very theatrical in terms mm-hmm. of really relying on your actor's right. chops. Perfect play. Yep. It's already inspired several plays, including oh. the 2005 Broadway play Souvenir, which starred Judith Kay. And it didn't have a very long run. It was very interesting because Judith Kay said, when you're performing live every night, you can sing badly for a little bit, but you're going to hurt yourself if you do it night after night after night. So Interesting, yeah. Okay, now also, did you have a favorite line? Come on, there was a favorite line. Yes, I mean, yes, okay. it's definitely the standout line, which she said in real life, they can say I cannot sing, but they cannot say I did not sing. Oh, God, that's so good. You know, that's lot belongs in one of those boxes on Instagram. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. You know, nothing venture, nothing. Get. I mean, it, everything about today's world is about you have to try, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily whether you get to the end or not, but good for her. You know, you I know, thought... You know, someone I really want to give a shout-out to is Simon Helberg from The Big Bang Theory. She's remarkable, isn't she? She can be a little flat. Flat? It defies medical science. Now, did you know that he plays piano in real life? Yes, I did, and he did all his piano playing in the movie. And he said that trying to play behind her singing that badly was like a plane going down and hitting the tops of trees. Like, <laughs> it was, I thought that was such a great phrase. Wasn't that, isn't that great? Yeah. And he that said it was, re- so you know, funny. it was really, really hard to do, but, um, 
I, I, I liked it a lot, yeah. Yeah, he you performed know. live on Stephen Colbert. He was great. And Nina Arianda, the Tony winner from 2012, she was in this film playing a character not unlike her Broadway debut in Born Yesterday. She uh-huh. was the one that got to do the Lindy Hop with Hugh Grant. I actually <laughs> loved that dance scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm telling you, Hugh Grant is a very talented actor. I bet he'd be interesting to know. You know, I do. I think he's a, I think he's a very talented actor, and I think this really brought it out. And the truth is, he and Meryl should do more together. Their chemistry's very good. Very good. They did a great job together. And of course, I thought it was very funny that Florence Foster Jenkins never lets her husband perform his monologues. Uh, well, there you go. Exactly. Now, for me, the best line is, ours was a very happy world. And I like that. I like that idea. I like it. I think it's great. Yeah. And who says that to who? Um, Hugh Grant says it to um, Simon uh, Helberg. He said, you know, we live in a very happy world and, you know, you, oh, you know, basically he's trying to say to him, you have to do this no matter what hit your career takes with it. So, yes, it was a terrific cast. I thought it was a masterclass in reaction shots and reaction, little peeps, little vocalizations, because they got a lot out of this little, it's kind of a one trick show where the one trick in their bag is that Florence Foster Jenkins wants to perform, but can't sing. They really made the most of that. Well, and they made the most also of loyalty. I mean, you know, the things that I hold dear, loyalty, commitment, uh, effort, you know, effort to excellence, you know, whether you, you, whether you get to the excellence or not is nowhere near as important as the fact that you actually try. It so, really portrayed yeah. the vulnerability of performing. I mean, it reminds me again and again what actors go through every yeah. time they audition, every really, time they step really on well stage. Yep. I loved Meryl's entrance. Of course, it was very true to Florence Foster Jenkins performing in one of her own tableau, where she literally enters the scene from the rafters wearing her outrageous costume. It's what I was hoping for when we discussed love and friendship. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you finally got it a few weeks later. (laughs) Yeah, so good for you for getting it. I mean, Florence Uh, Foster Jenkins knew how to make an entrance. Now, by the way, it didn't do the first opening weekend. You'd think those two names, you know, Hugh Grant and, and Meryl Streep, would bring it in, but it's 26 million, which is not a lot, you know, compared, I think they spent on it, what, 45 million or something making it. You really want to make back more than that first weekend. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it's going to be a hit. I don't think it is. Well, I, I liked Devil Wears Prada more, but you know, for a one trick pony, I, I thought it was, it was well done. It's funny though. At this point I have seen Meryl in so many movies that I'm starting to feel an amalgam of all her characters. You know, syphilis enters the plot and you start to think of out of Africa or you see the close up of her eyebrows and you start thinking Sophie's choice. I'm telling you, she's a little bit overexposed, which is not surprising considering how many movies she's done and how prominent they've all been. Okay, now do you want to hear my favorite story of the real life Lawrence Foster Jenkins? Uh, I didn't know you had a favorite. Do you have like five and one's a favorite? Okay, go ahead. I thought this was great. She was once riding in a taxi cab and a car just ran right into the cab and she let out a scream that was so high pitched. She later said, she actually reached the fabled F above the high C. So everyone was so sure she was going to sue because she's in this terrible car crash. And instead, she sent the, the, the cab driver a box of expensive cigars because that oh. was the one moment she actually hit the note she'd always saw. Huh. She's very odd. But, you know, authentically odd. <laughs>
Very odd. Yes, very, very odd. But uh, and also, you know, a li- it's a little self uh, important and, you know, I mean, you know, you have to have great wealth to be able to do, you know, it, you know, there is something very self-indulgent and not necessarily a good way about it. But mm-hmm. in the end, when she, you know, she cared so much about the soldiers and, you know, they loved, I'm telling everybody loves somebody who can't do something. It's just the hashtag, you know, love something, but it's somebody who can't do something. No question about it. And so. a huge patron of the arts. Yeah. When I was reading about these real life characters, I mean, you can't even make these characters up, you know, but the biographies at the end, her piano player became a bodybuilding judge until his death in 1980. I guess, I guess she did ruin his career. I mean, that was the concern was that she was going to, no offense, but uh, that was not what he aspired to be. So you know what? He did give up a lot to service her, clearly, right? Well, good for him for pumping iron yeah. while But you got to go see music. you got to go see this movie because it's all about an underdog. And isn't that always what we want to do, right? That's right. All right, now we can move into Occupied. Yes. The Russian government has kindly agreed to assist Norway. But now we're going to take Men vi får jo ikke hjelp. USA kommer ikke til å løfte en finger. Det er derfor de gikk ut av NATO. Vi er helt alene. Okay, so this was something someone recommended to me, and I'm not sure which of our listeners recommended it, but at any rate, so I went in to watch. It's on Netflix, and they spent, get this, so it's, of course, a Norwegian series, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the government gave them $11 million dollars to make it. So they made 10 episodes for $11 million, which means it's just over a million dollars per episode. And can I say, O'Toole, it is so well expensively done that it just goes to show we don't know how to spend money again in our country. Isn't it just amazing that you could make an episode for a million dollars? I'm amazed that it was that expensive. Wasn't Downton Abbey about a million dollars an episode? No. It was probably, I mean, including the actors? No, 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 no. Yeah. Nay, 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 no, nay, I think nay, it nay. was. No. I don't believe that for a second, but yeah. I'll check it out. We'll have to check that because out. Because you had but, to rent the premises, and you had to get all the costumes, and the silverware, and yeah. the huge ensemble. This, that actually sounds expensive to me. Well, there you go. I thought it was dirt cheap. But so tell me, did you do you like Occupied? By the way, let's just walk through a little bit about what it's about. And it's interesting, because at this point in time, it's about 20 years ahead of our time, and United States has pulled out of NATO, which is sort of funny considering the Trump issues about let's pull out of NATO if people don't start paying their way. But even so, more interesting, the U.S. is self-sufficient in energy exactly, production. and pretty much isolated. And, but I you like know, that. It takes the U.S. right out of the plot. Yeah, exactly. Well, you haven't seen the end. That's okay, true. so uh, so U.S. is not out of the plot. So it's out of the beginning of the plot. But... Um, so, and, and Norway is now cutting off their uh, oil supply because they want everybody to move to a more, um, a more uh, eco-friendly approach, which they're willing to, to pay for. And then, basically, the EU gets together, Russia is brought in, and basically they're strong-armed uh, with a, 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 a threat of, of, of bloodshed. They're strong-armed into reopening the, the pipelines and and so basically, they are an occupied country, but they're sort of pretending that they're not. And mm-hmm. I think it's so it's so funny because you know most of the occupied countries that we've seen have been in World War II movies, you know, that have come forward, um, you know, mostly centered around Nazi Germany. To see it done this way, where life can go on 
in today's world, totally as if nothing really was changing. It's don't you think it's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant use of politics and all kinds of other things? It's a very interesting concept. What you just said reminded me of our podcast on the movie, Our Brand is Crisis. Because Mm -hmm. the occupation is branded as European disaster relief, kind of a brilliant marketing turn. When I saw that this series was based on an idea by the Norwegian novelist Joe Nesbo, I was totally in. I've read, this probably goes to your point that we're all obsessed with serial killers, but I've read his entire Harry Hole series about his alcoholic Norwegian detective. Oh, is, is it in English? Yes, it's probably in every country around the world. He's I'll have to put sold. up a link. I, 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 I'm definitely going to read it. I mean, oh, it sounds fabulous. Oh, he's a huge novelist, which is why I'm not surprised they got the funding to do this 10-part series. So it's been, you know, the money was there, and then it wasn't, and then it was, and then there were there issues around the topic, and whatever. But anyway, it got done. So I didn't realize that. So, and I went and looked and I didn't see that he'd written anything else. So I'll have to check the book section. Absolutely. A huge, huge, huge novelist. And do and, you love the, do you love the architecture? Do you love the architecture of the, of the Capitol buildings and well, stuff? You know me, I love, I love anything it. Scandinavian. Yeah. I love the yeah. literature. I love yeah. the architecture. I love the people, yeah. you know, so I, I was in and it reminded me of our Borgen podcast, which of course took place in Denmark, where you brought up the issue of it's interesting to watch the values of a self-proclaimed small country, you know, for example, that they might value life above all else. So they can say, the prime minister can say with a straight face, well, we might have been occupied, but not one human life has been lost. And which actually is a lie. But which you, you know, see very early on is a human life was lost. He just doesn't tell anybody. Yeah. Still not on a mass scale. It's not Rambo, you know, just blowing people up in the name of a principle. And the balance they put on family life, we brought that up in our Borgen podcast. But yeah. here, you know, no matter how big someone's job is, they're still expected to be home in time to pick up the kids. And even when the prime minister's wife has a baby, the prime minister mentions the the idea of taking paternity leave. And interestingly enough, they don't live in opulence the way, you know, the way major politicians in our country do. So I was going to say the opposite. To me, it was interesting watching relative comfort of a people who supposedly are occupied. Yeah. I mean, even when they're down and out broke, like the wife that owns the restaurant, um, they still have beautiful clothes and, you know, it looks like delicious coffee they're drinking at breakfast. And it's not the World War II bunkers. Let's put no, it that it's, way. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's occupied in a totally different sense, but probably much more realistically to how it would be today. Mm-hmm. It's subtitled. And, you know, I know, I mean, I'm not somebody who loves subtitles because I can never multitask. It just means you're not going to watch all 10 episodes in a row. But I'm watching one or two a, a day, and I, I just absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. I think the way they weave it in is brilliant. The character development is great. People's choices that they have to make are, are understandable, and uh, I highly recommend it, don't you? I think it's very well done. It definitely, when I started watching the first five minutes, I thought this could be a slow burn, but it's filled with some unexpected plot twists. <laughs> Now, Eldar Scar plays um, Jupvik. Is that how you say it? The yeah, bodyguard. He, he, he plays the bodyguard. I think I've seen him somewhere before, but I looked him up and I haven't. And um, I think he needs a shout out. I think he's exceptional in also showing us the difficulty in making choices, um, but also the uh, the allure 
of fame and fame, you know, of being, you know, rising up and maybe leaving some of your, your morals and ethics behind while you do it. You know, today apparently is the day I'm just going to keep citing previous podcasts, but when we reviewed Our Kind of Traitor, the John le Carre movie with Ewan McGregor, where he was supposed to be this every man sucked into something much bigger than himself, I thought they pulled that off much better in Occupied, where you have the bodyguard, oh, and suddenly he's asked to negotiate with the Russians, he's got to interrogate a would-be assassin, and you see his character rising to these challenges, and then just as you say, like the Juliana Margulies character in The Good Wife, their own morals start to become more compromised as the job becomes more complicated. Exactly, exactly. No, really well said. I thought another thing they did really well is that even with the best of intentions, the characters are all at cross purposes. You know, so for example, the journalist's wife might be renting out her restaurant to wealthy Russians because she needs the money to pay their bills, but he's reporting on the Russians. Um, well, it's the- funny because during World War II in Paris, those that served the Nazis, mm-hmm. those restaurants and stuff, those people were tarred and feathered at the end of the you know, war. I mean, in other words, you had to choose and... But in this particular occupied situation, since they're pretending they're not occupied, uh-huh. it makes it makes it a little more gray and a little b- more blurry, you know. And and it's funny. At one point, he actually says to her, "What are you going to do when the Russians leave?" And she says, "I'll worry about that then." You know, uh-huh. like I'm gonna I'm gonna be in the moment in this particular instance. So it's it's. Uh, and yet, it's, the journalist himself is profiting, if you will off the occupation because that's what he's writing his stories about. Oh, totally. You know, he wants to protect his quote-unquote sources, the Chechen rebels, who the police might view as terrorists. And the bodyguard says to him at one point, you know, these people murdered, you know, you're protecting terror. Like, and, and then you sort of come to the point of, so would an American journalist protect a terrorist as a source? I don't think so. I don't think you're allowed. I mean, there's got to be all kinds of rules around that stuff but every single thing makes you stop and pause you know it gives it gives a moment of pause to today's world it also gives a moment of pause to the power of other countries over smaller countries and um and really how there's no recourse in the overall true scheme of things you know smaller countries over larger countries if they have a resource the larger countries want you like norway's like energy it's very well done watching such a free society imploding on itself without a shot really being fired by the russians yep you know absolutely and the political the politics of it all is so gently layered in like okay our part what our party's going to suffer here it's sort of like at one point the prime minister says, who cares about the party? You know, this is about something bigger than the party. Mm-hmm. And, but people in the party don't feel, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we, we face these, these questions every day in our own society. And I think it's so, so well done. And I love it. And why can't we do this kind of series in America? You know, well, really? <laughs> um, well, it does make you say, you know, seriously, why can't we do something a little you know why are why are we do so many series a year in this country and none of them are at the level of this type of thing they're well, just not. you know i saw an interesting interview with meryl streep where someone asked her about television and she said she thought the writing was so good she would definitely do tv if she were yeah. offered the right part well, well yeah, as you've said many times it's the golden age of television so mm-hmm. highly recommend and thanks whoever it was who who i tried to go back and see who who recommended it and i can't find it but whoever recommended it thank you so much Okay, and we'll be putting up some links on our site, screenthoughts.net, 
including six life lessons Meryl Streep learned from Florence Foster Jenkins. Okay. 